Last week, cyclone, bomb cyclone number two, hit. Hope everybody survived. It wasn't nearly as bad as the first one. Better safe than sorry, right? So I'm going to pick up where we left off. Um, and we did not get a recording of that last one, Scott. Sorry about that. So, but these are being recorded and they're going up on the webpage, correct? So if you missed a class and you want to listen to it. And I know all those people over there at that focus on the family will want to make up for tonight. That's why I brought cake, by the way, to reward you for being here and not over there. <laughs> okay. we'll make sure and tell them what they missed. Yeah, there you go. So when I, the first class, you know, I told you my story. I was raised in a, uh, in a non-religious home, I would call it. We went to church off and on when I was young, and then when I was about five, we stopped going all together. My parents were uh, in the middle of a very difficult marriage that finally ended when I was about 12. And during that time, my mom would be gone for months at a time, and my dad's sister would come down, and she would take care of us and take us to church and take us to summer camp, the Bible camp up in the mountains of, uh, outside of Los Angeles. And um, so I learned kind of two different views of this whole thing. Yeah, that, that early experience was with the faith, what I call the faith-only group. You know, I, I asked Jesus into my heart at Bible camp. And, um, and then as a senior in high school, I met someone who was uh, married to the preacher's daughter and um, started going to Church of Christ and heard a different take on this. And the whole subject has been fascinating to me my entire life. I, I started out... Can you imagine me going gung-ho on anything? <laughs> I mean, my first Bible, I remember, you remember sharpening the sword with Al Pickering? Well, Al Pickering was the preacher at the youth rally where I got baptized the first two times. Um, and I went to the Bible bookstore. I bought one of those little New Testaments, and I went through that whole thing in about a week. And you guys know Charlie Clinker, right, of this congregation? Yeah. He was in the Navy out in San Diego, and so he and I went to church at the same church. And when I was 17, and um, he and I did sharpening the sword together, we went over to the preacher's house. We got uh, correspondence course from the Sunset School of Preaching, and Richard Rogers, and Ed Wharton, and Jim McGuigan. And but I have just been fascinated with this subject and why there's so much um, disparity when, and maybe I'm biased. No, probably I'm biased. Well, almost certainly I'm biased, right? But it just seems to me it's not that difficult, right? It's just pretty straightforward. So to, to, to write this book, what I did is I went through and I tried to find, using a, a whole bunch of different methods, every single verse in the New Testament that has the word salvation or saved, or, you know, John likes to use eternal life, uh, or anything that, that represents salvation, and in the same discussion, talked about human activity. Somehow human activity is connected with salvation. So that, that was my methodology. And I came up with nine categories. Now, you know, some of these are pretty obscure, but, but there they are. Um, and that's where we left off last time. And um, what I tried to say was, and Tim Schwamm's not here, he's over there seeing that other teacher. You know, the, 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 you're really asking for your, your, here's my opinion. Your theology will get skewed if you take one or more of these and overemphasize it to the exclusion of the others. And that's what happens. And what we're going to show tonight uh, as I round off, round off this, this lesson and move into the next one, if you pit one against the other, you know, we tend to do that sometimes. Instead of seeing them as both speaking harmoniously, but maybe saying things from a different perspective. What's a great example of that? Paul and James, right? I mean, that happens a lot with Paul and James. They obviously have very, very different perspectives, don't they? But are they contradicting one another? No, they're not, are they, Don? 
they're they're really saying the same thing. They're just coming at it from a different perspective. Specifically, faith only. <clears throat> yeah, faith only doesn't work. Okay. I mean, neither does repentance only. Or any of these nine only is going to get you in trouble. You're going to be off target. Now, I was going to say before I get started, you want uh, uh, Keith... <laughs> I was going to call you Mr. Wise. <laughs> I love calling him Mr. Wise. But we have two Mr. Wises in here, don't we? Where's Derek? Where oh, there he is, right there. <laughs> Sorry, Derek. Uh, hold up your book, Keith. Here's a really good, easy read on baptism by Eplegard Smith. And he uses the analogy of a wedding ceremony. Great book. Now, <laughs> you can't see this because I got this on interlibrary loan, but and I'm not supposed to take this off, but... You want the book of all books on baptism. Unbelievable. Baptism in the early church. History, theology, and liturgy in the first five centuries. This is Dr. Everett Ferguson. I mean, it's a one-night read, right? Yeah, one-night read. I go on, I have access, uh, because I'm a graduate of ACU, I, I still have access to their... Uh, Journals, which is a fabulous subscription. It's hundreds of dollars, but because as a member of the alumni, I, I get it for free still. So I, I Googled it for the for the reviews of this when it came out. It's been out for 15 years or so. There's 22 reviews of this, three of them in foreign languages. One of them from our fellowship. Um, um, yeah, well, what's his name? But most of them... Yeah, are not from our fellowship. Now, they review it, and every single one of them uses the same terminology. Thorough, uh, encyclopedic, monumental, and then this phrase gets tossed around a lot. Not one stone left unturned. <laughs> I mean, this thing is 935 pages long. And he goes into the inscriptions that he found. He, he's the, he is the, what they call uh, patristic studies, which is the study of the first three or four centuries. All the writings of all the so-called church fathers. He goes to, to uh, uh, grave sites and looks at inscriptions on grave sites. He compared, he, he brings in the artwork he goes to the baptismal fonts, both in the East and the West, and all of that information he gathers and says, guess what? Pretty straightforward understanding of Christian baptism for the first at least four centuries and into the fifth century. Um, so I just, I, I just want to tell you that, that, as I said in my first class, I don't think we're wrong on this. And I know Church of Christ preachers that are backing off, you know, embarrassed um, and, and going. I heard one guy, very, very popular, uh, a fellow alumni of Abilene Christian, on the radio said, you know, you don't have to be baptized if you don't want to. You've been saved by asking Jesus into your heart. And now if you want to be baptized, you can. But go talk to your pastor about it. And here this guy is an international bestseller. What an opportunity to, to stand up and say, guys, we need to rethink this. While at the same time, there's a whole group of Baptist scholars that are saying, guys, we need to rethink this. And, and they're being thrown out, not thrown out, but they're being criticized by their own fellowship as being sacramentalists and water regenerationists and baptismal regenerationists. And one guy even said in one chapter in his book, he says, yeah, as much as I hate to admit this, I pretty much agree with those Campbellites. <laughs> so anyway, whatever's worth it, but that's where we are. And what I'm saying, where I want to go with this study is applying baptism to infants began in the second half of the second century. And it probably, as Dr. Ferguson says, it's not really clear where it began or when it began. It, the, the, the way you can tell it began 
is there's a bunch of writing saying, we shouldn't be doing that. We shouldn't be doing that. Why are we doing that? And then the response is, well, my baby was, you know, on the verge of death and I just wasn't sure. And so I just wanted to be sure. And so we baptized, of course, we couldn't immerse it. Um, so we just sprinkled it and they said, well, maybe that's okay, but that's, you know, an exception. Let's not let that become a habit. And guess what it did? It became a tradition. So by the middle of the, the, the third century, it's fairly widespread. And then by the time Augustine began his ministry, it's pretty much an accepted practice. And if you'll notice in the email I sent out, we're going to go into original sin tonight, but, but understand the practice of infant baptism came first. And almost 200 years later, when Augustine began discussing his ideas of original sin, he used the practice of infant baptism to support his ideas of original sin. Now, a lot of people think it's backwards, that original sin began and then they started baptizing babies. That's not historically how it came about. But it did... Um, throw a, a kink, a cog in the wheel, uh, is that right, a cog in the wheel, is that how you say that? A wrench in the machine? Why? Because it distorts the process, that's my point. It, it makes the water magic, right? All you have to do is make contact with the infant and now the ruling from the Catholic Church is, and I'm not bashing the Catholic Church, I'm just reporting you know, if you even if the baby is in the birth canal and is in danger of dying in birth, if you can, you know, somehow get up in there and make contact between the water and the infant, that water will remove that baby's sin. Well, you know, in the evangelical world, that's appalling, right? What are you teaching? Well, they're teaching magic water. And when they hear you and I say, hey, you have to be baptized, they they go there in their mind. Well, you're agreeing that the, there's magic in the water. And I'm saying, no, we're not, not. Not even close. Well, anyway, so here's my argument. It violates the process. God has revealed a process. And, and I'm not one to, to argue with God. If he says, do A, B, C, and I want to please God, what am I going to do? <laughs> but what if I don't want to do C? Yeah. You don't want to you guys explain it. Yeah, exactly. So, Christian baptism becomes the boogeyman of modern evangelicalism. I mean, if you try to start a conversation um, about the, the centrality of Christian baptism for at least the first five centuries, and then try to do a, a meaningful study of the New Testament, you're going to get these arguments. Number one, you know, you're not a Protestant. Well, in their mind, if you're not a Protestant, you're what? You're a Roman Catholic. I mean, it's like being in Mexico. There are two people, two types of people, two types of Christians. Un cristiano y un católico. That's all there is. You're either, you either go to Mass or... You hang out with everybody else who believes in Christ that doesn't go to Mass. And it's really cool because if you go down to those groups, we found in Cuernavaca entire groups that were teaching baptism for the remission of sins. Um, it was awesome. I called my elders, you know, at sunset, my sponsoring church. What do I do? They said, hug them and love them as brothers. <laughs> They're brothers in Christ. <laughs> you know, water regeneration. And here's the thing, Keith. You keep mentioning this, so I want to be sure that Keith's voice is, is not being overlooked. Another argument. If you insist that a sinner must be baptized, you're denying the free gift that God is offering. That's an argument you'll hear. Well, if you have to be baptized, then it's no longer a free gift. It's based on what you do. Last week, I was going to talk about that more, but because we got behind, I didn't. Remember the quote I sent out? Or there were actually three quotes. You know, grace to churches of Christ. This is our critics talking to us. Grace to the, uh, to the churches of Christ 
is basically what God reveals so that human beings can save themselves. That's their view of us. Well, I don't agree, obviously, but... Okay, and then this one is the big... Um, whoops. What do you think that was? The big red button. That was the big red button. That one's supposed to give me a, a little green. There it is. This last one, this is Calvinism. And I don't have a lot of time in this class to go on Calvinism, but it's a, it's a, it's a variation on a theme. If you require human beings to do anything to contribute to their own salvation, then you're, you're violating the sovereignty of God. It's, it's all about God. And I started it. There's, a, there's an article in there that Alan Thomas um, shared with me, and then there's another one in there. I'm referring to the Google Drive that I have. my, But he talks about, and it's Sproul, uh, it's two initials. What are the initials, Carl? R.C. Sproul. And he says, you know, I hear these evangelical preachers and they talk about you're in the, you're in the lake and you're drowning and God throws you a life preserver, but you have to reach up and, you know, with one hand, you have to grab the life preserver. Well, that's just plain Pelagianism. We're going to talk about Pelagius in just a minute. That's, that's salvation by works. Because you're requiring a human being to do something. And a human being cannot do anything. Otherwise, you're, you're violating the sovereignty of God. It's all about God. And he goes on to say, the biblical truth is, you're not drowning at the top. You're dead at the bottom. And God has to come get you. And if you don't believe that, you don't believe in the sovereignty of God. That's Calvinism. And it's it's just not biblical, folks. It's just, I'm sorry, it's just not what God reveals about himself. But that's that's their argument, and it's plain difficult to have a conversation. <coughs> you know, I had someone, uh, they were well-meaning, but it's a Calvinistic quote. They say, the only thing I contribute to my salvation <coughs> is the sin that makes it necessary. Now, I'm okay with that, as long as you don't take it to its logical extreme and say what R.C. Spool says. Okay, so the bottom line is we don't have to do it. You don't have to be baptized, because that's something humans do, and that, that violates God's sovereignty. So, here's the point, and I'm right on time. I, I, I'm like you, Fred. Uh, you know, I, I, I mean, I study this stuff, and I study this stuff, and I study this stuff, and I think, I think somebody's overthinking this. Because to me, the bottom line is, who, who is God? What is he like? What is his nature? The answer to those questions comes from his word, right? And I mean, he's not going to reveal himself in one way and then be another way, is he? Let, let me give you an example. As I understand it, this is always the way it's been. Man, I'm all thumbs up here. The, the issue is, what, what are we dealing with? We're dealing with the word of God. And anytime God makes an expression, he is going to be expressing his nature, his character, right? We can have to go to the Old Testament to find that. Well, it's in the New Testament, but I agree with you. It's all over the Old Testament. And I've got three examples from the Old Testament coming up, Bob. But, but that's not the end because there's not only the, the, the word of God, but there's the hope of God. And what is the hope of God? That human behavior will embrace his nature and his character as revealed by his word. So what's the first example? The first example is Adam and Eve, right? What did he say to them? I love you. I adore you. I want to take care of you. 
But if, if you do this, this is what will happen. Now, if they do this, what's going to happen? Exactly what God said would happen. Now, where does the deceiver come in and try to twerk this, tweak this? What did God say? If you eat of it, you will die. Oh, you won't surely die. God knows that in the day you eat, You'll gain something beneficial, something that you want. You see what he's doing? He's undermining the word of God. And so what did they do? And what happened? Did they die that day? Oh, they didn't? They were cast out of the garden. They were separated. That was death. That's what death means. Thank you. They didn't die physically that day. That came later. But they died spiritually that day. Correct? See, the deceiver, he comes at us with a kernel of truth, doesn't he? He's good at what he does. Here's another one. Numbers 21. Anybody know that story? Turn over there and look at it. I was looking at this again today, and it just... <clears throat> Numbers 21. What's the context? The people are out in the desert. They journey from Hor by way of the Red Sea to the Red Sea. Verse 4, 21-4, Numbers. The soul of the people was much discouraged because of the way. What does your version say? Verse 4, 21 4 of Numbers. They became impatient on their way. Became impatient with whom? God. So, what did they do? What did they say? Verse 5. And look at their distorted view of things. You brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness, for there is no bread here. Now, is that a truth or a lie? It's a lie. God was giving them bread every day. There's no water here. Is that a truth or a lie? God was giving them water. And our soul loatheth this Vile bread. What is your say? Miserable food. And you've been there? You ever been there with life? You ever been angry at God? You ever been disappointed in God? You ever cursed God? You ever gotten impatient with God? So what happened? Verse 6, he sends fire servants. And here's the point I want to make. And so in verse 7, they came to Moses and they said, We have sinned because we have spoken against Jehovah and we pray. We ask you, um, pray unto God that he may take these serpents from us. And so based on their faith alone, God said, Okay, you're all cured. What did he say? Make the, make the bronze serpent. Whoever looks upon it that's been bitten will be healed. <laughs> Whoever looks. The word is interesting. Now, well, first I want to say in verse I wrote here. Notice what they've already done. Have they already repented? Yeah. They they turned. They're sorry. They're sorry. <laughs> they turned from their grumbling and they sought out Moses. There's an act of repentance. Have they confessed? Yes. Have they asked for forgiveness? And now what are they seeking? What must we do to be saved? I mean, basically, right? And what does God say? Erect a bronze serpent. That's a, that's a snake. That's his tongue. Okay. And all you have to do is just know that that serpent's there. 
Just believe that that serpent's over at the other end of camp. Get bit by a snake. All you got to do, you know, hey, it's a long walk over there. You don't have to walk all that way. Right? You see the point, right? I'm preaching to the choir here. Do you see how straightforward this is? Do you see how simple this is? And it's always been this way. Let's go to another one. Any questions or comments about that? Hey, what if a guy was blind? What if a guy got bit by a snake, by a serpent, and he was blind and couldn't look up at this bronze serpent? What's God going to do then, you legalist? <laughs> you know what I don't know? I don't know what I don't know. I don't know what God's going to do if that really happens, if that's an exception, if there's some guy out in the Sahara Desert that can't get to water and can't get baptized. I don't know what I don't know. You know what I do know? I do know that if they got bit by a snake and they walked over to the pole and they looked up at the snake, having repented of their sins and confessed their sins and sought God's, and they were obedient to what God said to do, you know what would happen? They'd be saved. All right, let's do one more. We'll move on. You get my point, but oops, I keep hitting the wrong button. How about this one? I love this one. Joshua 6. What's that story about? The fall of Jericho. God, we want to take this city. What do we have to do to take this city? What's he say? How many times? Seven times. Well, six times, and then on the seventh day, seven times. One time a day, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, one time a day. Saying nothing. Just let the priest blow their trumpet, and then on Sunday, what do they do? Seven times. And then at the end of the seventh, then they... And then what happens? God's word, if you do this, I will do this. Now, what if they skip Wednesday? <laughs> what if they got sick on Thursday and did it twice on Friday? <clears throat> I think the whole camp would have had to get sick for that not to work out. See, I, toward the end of the class, when I get to come back, we're going to come. We're going to leave baptism after tonight, and then we're going to come back to baptism. And if I can get it to work, I'm going to show you a video by Francis Chan. You seen it, Francis Chan on baptism? I love it. I love it. You know what he says? He says. Peter was asked, what must I do to be saved? And what did Peter say? Repent, be baptized. And what did the audience do? They said, oh, what if I don't want to be baptized? What if I'm allergic to water? What if I can't swim? What if, what if, what? and you know what he says? He said, man, they didn't ask any questions. Why are we asking these questions? I mean, I love it. It's a great sermon. He said, my own daughter doesn't ask these questions. You know what? She comes home. She says, Dad, I want to be baptized. She doesn't say, Dad, why do I have to be baptized? She says, I love Jesus. I want to be baptized because that's what God says to do. It's always been that way. It's always been that way. Let's not be ashamed of that. You know, they'll label us. They'll, they'll say we're denying God's sovereignty. Am I really denying God's sovereignty? If you don't do what he says, you're denying his sovereignty. Thank you. <laughs> if I don't get up every morning, Monday through Saturday, and walk around the wall one time, I'm denying God's sovereignty over me. If, if I claim that you don't have to do that because it's silly or it violates some theological principle that's stuck in my mind, Come on, folks. God has revealed himself. And we should accept him at his word. He says, do it, Derek. Go ahead. Um, to be fair, I'm, I'm not sure that modern faith-only groups would disagree with you that the Old Testament was mainly about works, and, and they would say that it's, that it's a New Testament thing that is... Uh, Faith is the only thing, and there's no action that goes along with that. Okay. All right. Fair enough. 
Hold that thought though, because we're going to get there. Okay, we're moving that way. So fear of the boogeyman. Here's my here's my argument. We're back to baptism now. Okay, that was a little side journey. Applying infant baptism <clears throat> objections to true Christian baptism, which is what hearing the proclamation of the gospel message, comprehending its implications. Like I said in one of my first emails. You know, the, the facts are Jesus of Nazareth was crucified on a Roman cross. Now, one interpretation of that is he's, he's a criminal and he's being punished for his crimes. But here comes Peter and says, wait a minute, I have another spin on that story. Jesus of Nazareth had no sin, much less crimes against the state. And so his death was not to pay for his crimes against the Roman government. His death was to pay for your sins and my sins before God Almighty. Now the story becomes, okay, Jesus of Nazareth died for me. For me. And when I understand that, I have to do something with my life. I have to turn repentance, confess His Lordship, embrace what God has said He's accomplished in Jesus Christ, and be then be immersed. And my point is, that's a whole different idea than saying, oh, if you just touch the baby's head with water, you remove sin. That is objectionable. That's not biblical at all. But to apply those objections to the process God has revealed, in my mind, is invalid. Not only is it, in baptism connected to salvation has become anathema. And you try to bring it up, and you're automatically cast as, they're not going to listen to you. You have no credibility. Because you've given up the sovereignty of God, you've given up the free gift of God, you've, you've repudiated the Protestant Reformation, you've repudiated faith only, you've, you've done all these terrible things, you believe in baptismal regeneration. They've got all these categories to put you in. But what I'm asking is that you please hear what we're saying. And it also radically alters the way we read the New Testament. So Derek, I think I'm going to get to your point in the next section. So here's what I found. Here are the findings of my research. I told you I went through the Bible, and anytime there's a human activity connected to salvation in Scripture, I made a note of it. Here's what I found. Proclamation of the message is connected to human salvation 11 times. Faith. Faith is linked to salvation 30 times. So if we're going on, you know, majority rules, who wins? Faith only. Repentance, surprisingly, is linked four times. Kind of a small number. Here's even a, a more surprising. Confession is only linked two times. And once... 10, 9, and 8, and 9 of Romans, it's the, the confession is confessing the lordship of Christ, you will be saved. And in, in Acts, it says they came forward and confessed their sins. But it's not clear that that was an act of someone coming to Christ. It could be that it was Christians coming and confessing their sins. So I'm not sure that it's a part of the process of salvation. Is that the same word, confess, in the original language? Yeah, yeah. and confess means homo lugeo in the Greek. Homo is same, and lugeo is word. And so the word literally means to agree with. If you confess sin to God, you're agreeing with God that you've committed sin. <laughs> you see how that works? God already knows you've committed the sin. So it's not for God's benefit that he wants us to confess. No, he wants us to come before him and say the same thing that he already knows about us. And that's throughout the Old Testament and New Testament. When Achan committed his sin, did God know he had stolen that stuff? Sure he did. What did he want? He wanted Achan to come and agree with him. Yeah, I'm a sinner. Okay. You, you didn't take this out of the Net Bible, did you? This, these figures? I took it out of the original. Out of the original out of the Greek. I did a search in the original languages for the word salvation. And then, and then baptism is, is linked 
16 times. Now, I, that's a lower number because Paul's conversion, it, it might be 17 because he recounts his, his conversion and his baptism twice, one in uh, whatever it is, 19 and then, no, 22 and 26. Or do you know? Nine, like that. nine, twenty-two, and twenty-six. In nine, it doesn't record him being baptized. It's when he's recounting his baptism in twenty-two, and again in twenty-six, that he's baptized. But I didn't count that as two different instances. So it's only sixteen. It could be argued to be seventeen. So here's what happens. See, you've got all of these things that seem to be linked to human salvation, but when you come to this discussion, what gets the most emphasis? Well, faith, right? And so you get a guy who says, I got a faith-only passage, and he's probably got John, because John is a faith-only guy. You realize that, right? John, the only time John ever uses the word baptism is when he's talking about John's baptism and then a couple of references to Jesus baptizing. But John never says... Baptism leads to salvation. Never. For a sinner. So you do a superb job of forgetting, of exegeting that passage, a faith alone passage. They may throw in one or the other, more of the other 30 faith only passages, but the problem is what happens when Acts 2.38 comes? Or Mark 16, 15, and 16. See, here's what happens. If you're isolating one of the components, then what you wind up with is you've got Mark, belief, or faith, and then baptism, right, equals salvation. You've got Luke, who is actually recording something that Peter said. He says, believe? Oh, no, he skips that. He says, repent and be baptized. Then you've got John, who says, believe. So here's my question. Which one is it? <coughs> right? Which one is it? Does Matthew chime in? Matthew, yeah. Going to all the world, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So he doesn't mention anything except baptism. Doesn't mention faith, doesn't mention confession, confession. But here's the point. Is Mark an inspired writer? Inspired by the Holy Spirit. We, we agree with that. Even chapter 16, the last 12 verses. Okay. Is Luke an inspired writer? Yeah. Is John an inspired writer? Okay, which one has more authority than the other? Yes. See, this is, this is the, the merry-go-round. This is the merry-go-round that we, we engage in. Which one is it? Who's right and who's wrong? Why does it have to be one? Thank you. God, as I understand inspiration, God is revealing in diverse portions and at diverse times, God reveals his word to us. Yeah, I did a study one time on the parables of Jesus. It goes through the Gospels and where it appears in that Gospel. And not every parable appears in every Gospel. <coughs> it doesn't mean it didn't happen. That's right. So, you know, obviously I have my, my perspective. I think if you, if you agree that the, the canon has been inspired by the Holy Spirit and delivered to us, then each writer has to function, each letter, each document, has to function equally as the Word of God. Each voice must be given its own perspective, and it must be brought together as a unified whole. There is not one single verse that explains all of this process. They're scattered throughout the Revelation. And what I've tried to do is bring them all together, Mark. 
or other thing is if if you were to take one, either Mark, Luke, John, or Matthew, and, and that was the only one you used, then why did God inspire four different men to bring us the gospel? Four different perspectives. You know, Luke brings us his perspective as a physician. Matthew, uh, he was a tax collector, is that right? Yes. Um, I mean, they all come from different professions. They tell the story a different way, and people that read it are going to be able to relate better to one than the Correct. other. But it all brings the same information, bits and pieces at a time. That's what I understand. So instead of pitting these writers against one another, which you can easily do, and you you know I've had a thousand of these merry-go-round conversations, and, and it comes down to this: which is it? Well, who wins? So if John three sixteen alone, faith alone wins. I mean, if, if all you want to do is John, even his letters, faith alone wins. But what do you do with Mark? What do you do with, with Luke? What do you do with Peter? You know, who says baptism now saves you? I, I mean, it's just, to me, it's... Okay, so that's where we are. Questions or comments before we wrap that up? Why do the faith-only people get baptized? Why do they? Why do they? Like, I know some that don't believe that baptism is necessary, but when they had the chance to get baptized in the Jordan River, they sure wanted to do it. I think there's as many reasons for that as there are people that do it. Um, we can think of those as, as separate, like beads. You know, you're straightening a bead or a rosary or something. You believe you, these are all equal objects and things like that. Uh, I, I would hardly say you could say baptism is the whole thing. And then and it encompasses faith, where faith can encompass baptism. It's the, the, the understanding of the relationship of these things in the process of what is conversion and turning to Jesus, and we, not just gathering beads. Yeah. And we, I mean, I, I'll say I, I have been guilty of overemphasizing baptism. I have not fully understood the power of repentance. Repentance is key to spiritual transformation. <laughs> faith. I have, I have downplayed faith as trust, really trusting God when life gets tough. So, so I have been guilty of overemphasizing one thing over another. So I'm, you know, none of us are completely... <laughs> All right, let's uh, use the last eight minutes to introduce our next topic. This fun little subject of original sin. Uh, yeah, countless books and articles. Somebody was telling me, Fred, was that you? Were you reading some of those on original sin? I've uploaded some uh, journal articles on original sin. Even just go read the Wikipedia article about it. It's pretty good. It's been bannered around for you know 1,600 years. Um, it's, so it's impossible to cover all the nuances. But what I, what I think we need to do this lesson and the next lesson, next week is give an overview. Okay, here's the here's the problem: the discussion of the doctrine, you, and especially some of the stuff I've uploaded, they're going to assume that you already know what they're talking about, which is always a bad thing to do, right? So so go in there knowing these are scholarly journals that. Assume you already know what the doctrine of original sin is. Maybe we don't, because very few actually define it. There's so much variation in people's views of this. So here's what I, to try to help you. We are not talking about an act. Original sin. Well, that's when Adam and Eve ate the, the apple. No, that's not original sin. That's the initial sin. That's the first sin, but that's not the doctrine of original that's sin. That's the physical representation of your sin. Exactly. What that sin caused is original <laughs> sin. The consequences of that sin, that's the doctrine of original sin. That's what we're trying to get our mind around. We're talking about a state of existence. 
Okay, and it's and it's a slippery little booger. So <laughs> get ready. So Genesis chapter three. What can, what can we say for sure from the story? Well, their eyes were opened. They knew good and evil. They realized they were naked. For this, they didn't. They made coverings for themselves, which, by the way, fig leaves. I think the story's supposed to be funny. You ever, you ever handle the fig leaf? Huh? You can use it for sandpaper. <laughs> <laughs> and it's it not, go ahead. It is not the most comfortable stuff. And they put it on the the last place in, in the world of your body that you'd want this put, right? I mean, I think... There's another lesson there. Yeah, <laughs> I think the story of Adam hiding behind the tree from God, I think that's supposed to be funny. I guess at least they didn't choose poison. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they hid from the presence of God. They were afraid of being seen by God. Then they played the blame game. Adam you done this woman i love this that you gave me so it's all your fault <laughs> the woman this serpent that you put here they witnessed the curse of their sin how did god respond he cursed the serpent he increased the woman's pain and childbirth so as i understand this story these are all things that happened that weren't originally there because of sin. He turned the woman's desire toward the husband. I'm not touching that with a 10-foot pole. He declared the man would rule over the woman. I'm not touching that with a 20-foot pole. What is all that? I don't know. He cursed the ground. This one I know about. You wonder why you hate your boss and you hate your job? Go get a different job. Where, where are you going to be? Same place. <laughs> oh, I'm just going to go farm. I'm just going to go do this. I'm just going to go do that. I'm just going to go to a deserted island. Yeah, I'm trying to find your food. Guess what? You're going to toil. It's a universal curse. He removed access. Here we go. Now we're getting into deep waters. So was physical death a consequence of the first sin. It does seem like it, doesn't it? Because what did God say in 22 through 24 of chapter 3? Uh-oh. They now know good and evil unless they stretch out their hand and eat from the tree of life and live forever. So he denied access to the tree of life. Did you know that death, I preached this at a funeral, did you know that death is not a curse from God, it is a blessing from God. And what does he do? He reduces the length of our life as time goes on. Is that a bad thing? Does, it, does God do that because he hates us? No, he does that because he loves us. <laughs> anyway. I'm off, I'm off target here. Okay, last one, which is a biggie. God left. Did he come down and walk and talk in the garden with Adam? Well, yeah. yeah he was. After he sin, there, they were older. <laughs> What does that mean? He separated himself from the human being. Somebody said it earlier. The golf couldn't call this the rupture. The rupture? No. <coughs> Isn't a separation from God death? Spiritual death? So that's the story. Now what are we supposed to conclude from the story? We have two minutes and then we'll pick this up. The, the normal course of conversation goes like this. Human nature was affected. Before the fall, before the sin, they were naked and they felt no shame. The scripture specifically says that. And what happens after they sin? God says to Adam, and I'll quit here and we'll start right here next time. See, here, here's where I, I said this in a class a couple weeks ago, and if you were in there, 
just con consider it a real. We talk about the fear of God. Is the fear of God good or bad? Good. Oh, it's good. Is it always good? No. Because what did Adam say? God said, where are you? And what did Adam say? I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid from you. Is that good fear? Is that the fear God wants from us? No. That's shame. That's shame. That's shame. No, that's a consequence of sin. That's a bad thing. All right, very good. Something about these two human beings has changed. But here's the thing, okay, and we'll start right here next time. Whatever changed in human nature is the doctrine of original sin. And then the question is, did Adam and Eve pass that on to their descendants? Did we inherit that? That's the doctrine of original sin. And that's where we'll start next time. Let me lead us in a prayer. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for revealing yourself to us. God, I hope I haven't been, uh, certainly haven't, I hope I have not been arrogant or come across as being arrogant. I, I try to be straightforward with your word. And God, I know that the book of Genesis was not written by a PhD for other PhDs. It's a very straightforward story that reveals a very straightforward message. And it appears to me that you are trying to interact with us. You are giving us instructions that you are wanting <coughs> us to obey. And that, that principle goes all the way up until the death of Christ. What must I do to remedy my sin problem? I must come to Christ in faith, in obedient faith. And I, I just, God, I want to know what that obedient faith looks like. I want to practice it first and foremost in my own life. And I want to teach it to anyone who will listen to me. That if we do what you say to do, you will honor that by doing what you promise. And you say if we accept Christ... You will remove our sins and make us holy in your sight. And I just thank you for that promise. And we rest our confidence on that promise. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. All right. See you next week. Hey, I'm Eddie White, the senior minister for the Eastside Church of Christ. Sure want to thank you for joining us today on our podcast. I hope today's message was indeed a blessing to you like to invite you to browse our website at eastsidesprings.com to get more information or to contact us. And as always, we indeed welcome you to join us for our worship service in Colorado Springs every Sunday at 1040 a.m. as we seek to live out Jesus' mission of making disciples of all nations.